Hello, and welcome to Soccer Sensemaking, where we dig into coaching topics like practice design, language, and tactics. We are coaches having authentic conversations where we can question cultural norms. My name is Julian Khalili, a passionate coach and aspiring researcher who wants to improve our field. I believe quality conversations are a good place to start. Enjoy and keep it real. What's going on, guys? We're back for another podcast here. Um, thanks for tuning in. We are going to talk about this concept of the training week. So designing a training week as a coach and related concepts to that, like managing load, what do we think of it, um, and you know the kind of tactical periodization of the week, th- these kinds of things. Um, I wanted to just start it really general and start with Ivan and say, what do you think of, of um, this idea of managing the week and setting up the week in a certain way for, to manage whatever you need to manage? Yeah, welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is Ivan again. I'm the Academy Director for El Paso Locomotive UFC, if somebody missed the previous um, episode. Um, yeah, I think it's a really interesting concept just because historically, if you're looking at it from um, from you know how has this become even a part of the conversation uh, when i was a young player and i'm turning 32 in march uh, 20 years ago let's say uh, this was not part of the conversation within the coaches or at least in hungary where i grew up it wasn't um as a matter of fact i believe that in college for example it's still not a conversation because i still hear horror stories where you know a college team would lose a would lose a game on a on a saturday and uh you know would have a fitness day on a on a monday so you know it's it's uh it's one of those um conversations that i think it became more prevalent as the licenses and everything else became more important in the in the world of uh, soccer coaching however i do think that now it uh we say it in hungarian we have a saying that you fall on the other side of the horse uh you fell way on the other side of the horse. So basically you, the, how do you say the swing, uh, like it went too far or, or it went completely the other side. I don't know how many of these things I can, I can list, but the, but the point is that it went too far. And uh, that is my basic point of view of training load. I think that a lot of people that might not be soccer specific people gained a lot of attention and gained a lot of power with the attention, um, to talk about the game as if it is a, um, you know, like a motoric linear um, um, situation where you need to plan everything ahead of time and that, that plan uh, is going to determine um, even soccer-specific things. I heard um, in Hungary, again, where I'm from, where, when this whole thing came in um, about, you know, how many kilometers they need to run in a training session in order to hit the target, the training target and stuff like that. I've, I've heard where there is, you know, fitness coaches on the side of the of the practice session and they are, you know, because of the GPS giving them live data, um, they literally telling them that that's it. That's it for that guy. He, he had his load and now he needs to be done with training session. Meanwhile, the learning or whatever the concept that they were uh, training or what they're trying to improve upon um, wasn't there yet. Now, 
a lot of people I hear it already. I hear it already that the people are that are like uh, in this world are saying to me, yelling at me, like, "No, that's just places where they interpret it the wrong way. That is not how it's being run." And I'm and I'm pretty sure that's true. Uh, at the same time, I will say that the training load, I think, is one of the just one of the one of the concepts that we need to consider it's not the entire concept i think it's a framework that people tend to hide behind to you know um try to hide their lack of knowledge or ideas about the game itself and it's a perfect tree to hide behind in hide and seek um just to begin to begin with that I, and i think that's that gave yeah. enough ammunition to gonzalo and sasha to and to you julian to continue So what I'm hearing is um, you don't you don't think too highly of it in the sense of it being the no I think it's needed kind of sole reason to design and base your week around off of like load metrics. No, I, I let the others talk as well, but I do know I, I think it's important, and as a matter of fact, I think it's very important for injury prevention. I think it's very important to to make sure that your team is ready for the weekend uh, mentally because we cannot separate. Uh, the whole into parts uh, you know when you are mentally fatigued you're going to be fatigued physically and when you're physically fatigued you're going to be mentally fatigued and so you need to consider those things and i think it's very important because at the end of the day i want to win the game on saturday so i need to do everything and every little concept that helps to prepare the team to to win i will take take advantage of and i want to know more about the physical preparation i had a i had a head coach here at the academy that i'm coaching that is that was the the head coach for the first team his name is john hutchinson and he's um he's now an assistant coach in the japanese first division he's an excellent excellent coach and he had a very specific idea of how to run his training load situation and i learned a lot from him and i thought i thought he was chinese in the beginning but then you know i i understood a lot of parts to it and i said that you know it's important i'm not necessarily following his methods but i took away something about it about injury prevention and about being fresh and about the players not feeling that they're overworked or underworked so it's a really interesting situation which you need to consider but i what i just wanted to highlight that a lot of people take advantage of it and it's being used way too much that was my point like um i mean i think we can all agree that it is important to observe how much a player is running throughout the practice week or in a game because how much he exerts himself um, affects him going forward, right? Like I played last night and I couldn't play after five minutes anymore. So then I, I affect, it affects me how I play, right? And if we train two hours or one hour on a Monday, that would have effect on the performance of the players Tuesday, depending on what we do. So I think we can all agree that how much a player does in practice physically exerts himself it affects his performance and so as Ivan alluded to is if we are thinking about well how can we best structure this week that on the weekend and anyway, we're talking about performance age groups here but if how can I structure this week so that on Saturday they are in their peak performance that they're not tired from the practice week because then they look like me after five minutes yesterday and that's not good so I think it is important 100% to consider that but I also feel, as Ivan said, that you know we, we've taken this too far sometimes. And um, as coaches, generally, we're trying to have like easy tools, right? Solutions that we oh look, this is this is fine scientifically proven. This is what we have to do, right? And so we we go to experts, um, physical experts that know how much um, 
I don't know, how many steps we can run or what our heart rate should be or those signs and we measure them and then based on that, purely only that, we start to make decisions and we justify our decisions with that. And I think that is too far because there are so many things that affect everything that, I mean, that's the expertise of the coach, right? To evaluate all of that um, and make, make the best decision and not just go with, okay, we had a game yesterday, so today we train, everybody trains at 50%. No matter that one of them was a center back and one was a center midfielder maybe, or one played 90 minutes and one played 60 minutes. Like there are things to consider that go way beyond what the numbers are gonna tell you. Um, you know, one had a bad night of sleep and the other one had a good night of sleep. So, yeah, that, that I think um, we can all agree it is, it is important to consider. It's just about how we consider it, I think we can, we can discuss and probably depends also on the level, the age, um, the amount of training and everything together. Yeah, to just kind of keep going, what Sasha was saying is like, uh, and it's been, I think, kind of the trend a little bit that we've discussed in the last few podcasts is just like this um, underneath this like desire to want to fragment things to understand them better um, is just kind of like, I think, historically, the, the paradigm and the philosophy that has like been successful in science. And so I think a lot of that has carried over into sport. Um, and it's interesting, and I'm sure you guys have all kind of read, like read the history of like periodization, how it started with like the individual sports, with the Olympic sports, with the weightlifting, with the sprinting that had like fantastic success uh, in those sports because it was like there was like one time in the year where there was competition where you needed to be at your peak and then uh, it would go back down. So it was very natural to kind of like bring the athlete like that but then uh, and they started to carry that i think like into the team sports and uh, but i think you run into like two big problems first is that it's not an individual sport like you need to be able to harmonize the team the team needs to understand how they're going to play with each other um and then uh, the other problem is that we want peak form the whole year the whole season we don't want peak form for the last two games or the first two games so um, I think there starts to emerge the conversation that like periodization if if it is to be used like in soccer and football is not from like a physical standpoint it's you have to I think kind of take the athlete and the team as a whole um, and try to understand like all the factors that impacted all the factors that impact performance the social aspect the psychological aspect, the physiological aspect, all of those things and how you're trying to plan and manage that throughout the season. Yeah, that, that sounds really good. Um, I'm just kind of backtrack onto what Sasha said for a second and I'm wondering, just so we're all on the same page, what is a, the performance age group? And when we're talking about the performance age group, is that where these conversations are more important about, well, if we're talking about the load management fragmented from everything versus what Gonzo and Ivan are talking about, which is more about everything is connected to everything. And to fragment one part of it just doesn't give you enough information as to what to plan your week around. 
or enough um, you can't plan with it you know it's not it's just one aspect by itself that doesn't exist without the other aspects it's kind of what I'm hearing. so so I, I had a comment on this because uh, you know as the as our listeners know or maybe don't know but some of them might know that you know I worked under Sasha and so we had these meetings where uh, we would be sitting in a room um, and we would talk about the game and and Sasha one of the things that he always brings up as a point is uh, hey we need to consider the age group and I think that's a very good point and I you know it made me of course you know trying to be intellectually ready for a comment like that and 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 think about like okay not shoving it away right away like okay like that's not something that i want to like consider so much but it is true like you need to consider however i will say that when it comes to like training load i think that again like very similar to what we talked about last week um which is gonna sound very anti-data anti-statistics anti-science meanwhile it is not that I think a lot of times you need to observe and make decisions based on your observations. Now, science is helping you. So like if you have a GPS system and right now uh, I was able to, as a youth coach, you'd really have, you will have more and more, I think, access to these kind of things. But I was lucky enough to have multiple locations in my career to use a, to use a, to use GPS uh, or some kind of measuring uh, device that will support your observation. Uh, I give you an example. Like lately, uh, we used we used uh, some GPS on our players here at the at the at the U20s, our reserve team, our secondary team, to our professional team. And turns out, usually, what they say is that when you have a game, that's if that's like that's one unit, like the load is one unit during the game. You want to kind of do between two and two and a half units during the week total. Okay, meaning that if you run 10 kilometers during the, but this is very basic, this is not, again, I'm not the scientist, so don't quote me on this, but if you run, you know, 10 kilometers in a game, then you want to have, during the week, uh, they should run no more than 20 to 25 kilometers. That's like average. Uh, Obviously, it's a scale, so if you're 5 kilometers, then it's... um, 10 to 15 kilometers is that what it is um so yeah so in other words in other words uh you know two two and a half is the magic number so it turned out that in a random training week uh my teams was between three and four um which is you know over over train um basically meanwhile i just ran the same same training sessions that i always done you know with you know middle of the week highest load end of the week lowest load uh, but it turns out that we overworked and i i started to pay attention to the time so now i'm not doing six sets of the rondo but i'm doing four sets of the rondo i'm not maybe i'm cutting the the small sided game at the end because i would do it just because to make the kids happy because then they can play small sided but maybe it's not needed every single week so um so like i used to pay attention I, I started to pay attention to that and then that helped and why am i doing that and that's why i'm talking about you need to consider the young players or not oh sorry the age groups what sasha always says and that's his mantra that like you need to consider the age you need to consider the age which is very true but i also think that you also need to consider the environment the most part of the environment is the age group but you can run a professional training load at U12, because it will benefit them the same way as you can do with a professional team, I think. And we have sayings, things like, 
hey, like, oh, the U12s, they can, you know, they recover quicker. Yes, they recover quicker. So, like, we know that, like, you know, it's not going to hurt them if we play a half an hour more on a Wednesday. But if you always play a half an hour more on a Wednesday, it might hurt them. So I think the age group is an important piece, but I also just think the basic ideas of training load should be considered um, when you're training a, a team because all you want to do is win on the weekend, even though I know that U12 is development first, but, you know, the, the game itself creates to win. So um, you want to do everything possible from the early ages to, to, to secure that. I don't know if that makes I mean, sense. Ivan, can you go into what, what you just said with professional workload? What do you mean with that? Like uh, the GPS, and right? Like the, the, the can G also run. Like, like for example, like, uh, like it's not. It is the idea is the basic idea is in then the then the when the game happens after the game you wanna slowly get into it in the first training session, slowly increase the load. The middle of the week you should go if you have one game on the weekend back to back, right? Like not not a tournament, like not the American nonsense where you have seven games in a weekend, just one game on Saturday and then the, another game on the next Saturday. So on Wednesday or Tuesday or Thursday, depends on what your prioritization is, when is your off day, depending on your off day, you wanna do the highest load in the middle of the week and then you're gonna go down to refresh and to, to be ready. Like for example, John Hutchinson, again, the professional coach that was here, he had Thursday as the week off from Saturday to Saturday. So he had Saturday game. Uh, I don't remember if Sunday he did the recovery on Sunday or he had an off day and then the Monday was uh, recovery or off. Like what I think Sunday was off and then Monday recovery, Tuesday training session, Wednesday highest load, Thursday off, Friday pregame, Saturday game again. Like that was his prioritization. Right now my U20s have a little different one that I don't really like. I have a Monday recovery uh, back into the training uh, a day, Tuesday um, highest load, Wednesday off, Thursday tactical minus two, and then Friday pregame. Uh, I like where Tuesday is off, so then I can hit, like I can hit the hardest on Wednesday. But some people say that because you recover the best uh, after the high, well, you you need to recover after the highest load, and you can't recover from it for two days. As a result, when you have a Wednesday highest load, Thursday should be off. That's why John Hutchinson did Thursday off. So, you know, it, it depends. But I think this idea, this idea that we are using with the professionals can be used with the U12 team as well. You know, you can be giving the highest load on a Friday just because it's U12. You can't physically, mentally, uh, tactically, like you need to follow what is on the science books of like highest load middle of the week and then lower at the end of the week. Uh, what what becomes and sorry I'm gonna let you talk but what becomes interesting is when you have two training sessions a week right like because it's a U12 team so how do you paradise there I'm putting my hands up and I'm gonna listen to you well I, I and obviously you know a lot more about this than I do um, I based don't on think where so you've coached in the past and the age groups and your responsibilities um, what I just generally, so when we talk about, okay, we have a game on Saturday and then we do a recovery session, right? Or our workload is low. I, my experience, like 11 or 12 year olds are not, do not need a recovery session because they're not tired. They play this the is game, what I'm saying. I, I don't know they, if I agree. And they, and, and the, in my experience, they are not. How about and, the emotional, how about the emotional and the, and the, sorry for interrupting and I, and I don't want to take on the show, but yeah. I, you know, I interrupt because I, I want, I think it's important to make the point. This is what we're talking about complexity, right? Like I'm not talking about, okay, so now you're going to play another game on Monday. Yes. They physically able to play another game on Monday, 
right? Like because they're not tired is what you called. However, how about the emotional load? How about the, the, the cogn cognitive load? That needs to be considered. So maybe you do now a, their favorite game. Maybe you're still playing, but you do a favorite game that you ran before. A small-sided game, 5v5, just put the ball in and play. Physically, they will be able to cope. And mentally, it's going to be a lower load than the high emotions of an important game on the weekend. That's what I mean. Yeah, and generally, I think, I th and I agree. And I, for me, it's emotional. I would make the same argument. I don't think that a U12 game is as emotional draining as a U17, you know, almost professional kind of game where the games are close, where playing time is distributed differently, where decisions matter way more in the, or the consequences of the player's action matter way more than a U12 game. Um, now, as a coach, I can create also an environment that has a different feeling for it um, that can make it more consequential but generally a u12 player after losing the ball game he is upset for five minutes and he moves on and wants his ice cream still like they're still the, the way they think about themselves the way they think about the game the meaning in their life is a little bit different um, they generally play for fun which might not be the same for a u17 player anymore on the outcome of a game might affect a u17 player differently so yeah in that sense and and i yeah. Definitely, you are 100% right. You should consider everything, not just about physical load, but emotional load, right? There's something about, when we talk about training load, we talk about performance, but we also talk about, of course, injury prevention, which we haven't talked about, right? Like your muscles are not being able to, because they are tired, to, to fire as quick at the right time. It's just a little bit off. And a U12 player does not really have that, right? right? He doesn't exert his muscles to that degree that there are issues like that happening. Um, then comes the age of 13, 14, 15, where you're dealing with growth spurts, where we might actually have to take a different approach based on where the player is and what he struggles with. Um, and then for me, um, the performance age group, Ivan, what you talked about, um, where you should model yourself more after a professional workload environment. 100% um, agree. I just don't see when we start talking about U12, then why are we not also talking about U10 or U8 or U6? At what age? Does it become appropriate to model the professional workload? And why are we modeling at a certain age? Right? Why we can say U12? Why can we say U10? What is the what are the things that are happening in that child at that age that make it appropriate for him to do that workload? What what I think what I would jump in there is like um, I agree. I think at the younger age groups, like the physiological kind of um, aspect of like performance plays I think less a role just because like the output the strength the the, the amount of muscles I have just the output is not as intense right so they're able to recover um, more quickly where I think I think you can start to make a little bit of an argument is that I don't think um, kind of designing some sort of overarching routine for the organism to adapt to I don't think is a bad thing you know naturally as human beings too we're like accustomed to like the circadian rhythm right like the sun is up, we wake up. The sun goes down, we should go to sleep. Um, and kids also kind of have a natural routine and rhythm that they go through their life. Um, and I think that can be, uh, I, I would argue it can be a good thing. And I think in terms of the training, you could start to have some sort of routine that could link to kind of your idea of what you're trying to develop in them, right? Maybe let's say you only train two times a day. Maybe it's important for them one day to train like very individual things, individual competition, so that they learn like, I need to be able to like solve these problems, I can rely on myself, you know, and it's a good thing to develop that socially and technically. 
and then maybe you have another day where they work maybe in, in, in groups and now they have to learn how to cooperate and you can start to I think kind of prepare the organism to, to train in that pattern you know this day is a little more individual another day maybe is a little more collective and you're in a way you're periodizing but it's not like based on like the physiological stuff it's it's trying to take I think into account the bigger picture if that makes sense and you don't have to do the same thing every Monday and every Wednesday um, you can still kind of have a general pattern but and then you just kind of change the stimulus when within those days but there's like where I would say maybe um, to have some sort of pattern even at the younger age groups could make some sense Absolutely. It's just based on that environment that you are at, right? And it could mm -hmm. be also when we talk about age group, it's also about the player's um, motivation to be there can affect that too, right? Mm -hmm. You can have, I'm working with U10 recreational players, so they train twice a week, they don't play a game on the weekend, they just have two sessions. Versus, you know, I could be in a pre-academy where they train three to four times a week and have a game on the weekend and go nice. to tournaments. So the age itself is one thing, but the other is the, the motivation of the players. And so what I do, for example, with this recreational program, we train on a Tuesday and a Wednesday. And their passion, I mean, they want to play soccer. That's why yeah. they are there, right? Yeah. They, they're the more... Um, constrained exercises we do and they are not heavily constrained but they are constrained where hey we're going towards an end zone versus a goal like that affects them because mm -hmm. they can't shoot the ball anymore right there's right. like so I have to be very much aware of that that I give them enough free freedom to just play a game and that's what usually we would do on a Wednesday we call it the game day and uh -huh. then on Tuesday would be what we call the skill development day, where we do more 2v2, 2v1s, like and they also know this, and then they can expect certain things, knowing that on Wednesday, hey, we play almost for the whole time uh, with games, and they can make their own teams, and there comes motivation from that. Um, yeah, so I 100% I agree. You look at your environment that you are in, you look at the motivation of the players, the age characteristics um, that are important to consider, and then create some kind of periodization, I guess. Um, mm -hmm that fits what that environment is like. Needs, yeah. Well, what we're talking about I like that a lot. Now, I like those themes. Yeah, same, same. And we're getting into this idea of um, what we do at training. And um, what I find, just from my personal experience here, and I don't want to speak in universals, back to what we were talking about, at U10, U11, U12, they can play nonstop, guys. They can play so much. And they need the night off, maybe a day off, and then they're fine. Okay, like these kids love it. They, they love to play. And I think a lot of times they are put into, it's the other thing happening. They're put into systems that is kind of over-periodizing them when their children, who in my opinion, and the way I would design weeks, is to have a lot of neutral-based training sessions where it isn't even designed specifically towards a particular team topic or concept and it's not designed essentially to bring out certain types of skills and variations between these skills like passing and dribbling like I don't design it for that all the time I think every single training session for these ages I will have neutral type 5v5 things maybe smaller maybe bigger where I'm it's about them playing they might pick their own teams they might you know go in there and make their own rules whatever but it's about them owning their environment and playing and i'm not worried about the load with them at all you know but when we get talking about older age groups and we think about 
like uh, muscle injuries and things we have to worry about with that. I think we we have to balance how we kind of design the week based off of kind of what Sasha's talking about now, like skill training or team coordination training or like if it's U17, U19, are we talking about performance training? In my opinion, I think there's a difference here. Even though skill adaptability type training is also training for performance, I think that when you get into like a more performance age group, you do things that might be a little bit different than you would be that's specifically designed for performance. You know, like maybe more set piece work, maybe more like organizational team tactics than I would with like U11, U12. I don't know. What are your what are your thoughts on that, guys? The the one little thing I'll jump in really quick that's that stuck out to me uh, when we speak about the load. I feel like the load is also like very numerical. Also, you know, we think about it in distance or um, in the, all the different little metrics that like the uh, maybe like the GPS can give you. But again, it's like you're losing kind of the qualitative assessment of like the performance. You know, it's like what are the actions that are being performed? You know, are they are they sprints? Is it like uh, running for long periods of time at a certain uh, speed? Is it like uh, sharp changes of uh, the acceleration, deceleration? Um, I think all of those pieces matter, you know, I think, I don't know if you do like five sprints because you're sprinting back to your goal to defend the goal, maybe it's more exhausting than doing five sprints with the ball going and scoring five goals, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think those are some of the like qualitative, I think, assessments when we like speak about load that um, I think people don't, don't consider. Okay. So I think, I think about the accelerations and decelerations. I think I always feel very interested about that. Um, just because, you know, so depend the game, the game forever is changing and it's not, it's unpredictable and it's never going to be the same. So as a result, how am I going to be able to predict the number of accelerations or decelerations, in a in a training session, what, what's needed? Like, how can I determine that? I don't think that now that, though, that, that is the level or that is the line where I, I, I feel a little bit like, okay, I'm, you know, people, people label me sometimes like anti-science like I'm not anti-science I'm definitely interested in how is this helping or how is this helping the, the children and how is this helping the players um, if you're talking about professionals but I draw the line there because I have a player who you know we play an over the river run though right and um, you know that means that if you give it away you need to now sprint to the other side and defend there and then you if you win it then you can stay on that on that um, area but there's a player that you know never gives the ball away he's the best player he keeps the ball all the time um, and as a result the way that that game goes is that if you're giving the ball away you better sprint to the other side and that's not a that's not a, a, a coaching decision that's not like you know me deciding that, that that that's just like the dynamic of team sports and that's what they they do um, so I, when that happens my player that is very good will never go and sprint to the other side to defend. So he's never going to get the acceleration deceleration. Uh, but in the game, it is very similar. So since he, he doesn't give it away, he will need to make different different movements than the one that always gives it away, who's always finding him. So it's like 
you know, I, I'm having a hard time with the cookie cutter. Hey, these are the number of accelerations and decelerations that need to be hit in this training session in order to be the physical prioritization to be right. And how about space management? Some players like, and you know, I'm not going to use the word messy because, you know, that's like too drawn out. But the same player that I'm thinking about that never gives the ball away in the over the river, he's a 10, who lately lately started to move everywhere he wanted to play right back he wanted to be a left wing he wanted to be a four and i had to tell this mexican boy that um uh you know you need to calm down and not run that much and and stay in your position a little bit and so if we are looking at it from a from a load standpoint the numbers will show that he's actually doing less uh during the game from week to week because my my instruction uh, in a hefty and aggressive uh, halftime talk to stay in your position and play from there because your best is to be between lines and give the final pass the numbers will show that he's actually running less working if you don't see me because it's great radio right now because i'm doing hand gestures but i'm doing the quote unquote thing it he is working less or not as hard as before and so that's why i think it's misleading to look at some some very specific numbers. I think it, I think the game is very unpredictable, and I think um, and complex. I think the I think these kind of conversations and these kind of numbers and the way that we approach it also needs to represent that. It's like that Todd Bean story that he tells about um, uh, Johan Cruyff, and they're like showing him how much a player. I think it was like Javi was running, and they they showed him, and he's like, "Why are you showing me this?" Right, and they're like, "We want to show you how." how much he's run and he's like well i want him to run less you know <laughs> like why are you showing me this it doesn't mean anything and it's just kind of a funny example i think where it's like yep. we don't look we look at it as numbers and not the context in which the running's happening is like like to ivan's point if you're playing in a certain way and you're having success like in the rondo example you won't run as much Yeah, so that's right. It's an individual-based thing. It needs to be. It needs to be. It needs to be considered. But but I also I think it starts with observation, and people forget about that. Like, observation is the beginning of everything. It's the beginning of everything, and I think it's a really hard skill to talk about as well. Because I think it's. I I don't know. I'm having a hard time teaching this skill to my to my colleagues, because they feel that act the action man. Right, we talked about this last podcast. Action man, action man, action man. You need to show up, and it needs to be, it needs to be, you know, energetic, and it needs to come from you, and it needs to. And so, I I was thinking about this, like, what do I do that I think like creates the environment for the players that to like, okay, so if anybody shows up at any given moment, it looks like it's competitive. It looks like the kids know the rules. It looks like there's a game, and I think that it comes with experience. You have to have a lot of training sessions, Ren to know like how a certain exercise works well and a certain type of thing works well and you need to be well-versed in that. But I also think that the more preparation you can put in in order to create an environment where the game looks like a game, you know, rules are clear. You, it's not controversial. You thought about like, okay, if you make this rule, how is that going to affect the behavior of the player? And then how is that rule going to come out if they cheat on that rule? Like you need to think about the reverse side of things too. And then when this happens, now you can, because the reason why I'm saying this, because training session design that we talked last week and this is very much connected. 
because now you can come out because you are doing it as a routine. You know how this game is going to look like. You know the rules that are going to work. You know what's going to kind of behavior going to come out of it. And now you can observe. Because if you are going in there without knowing how this is going to look like, that's why it's really, you need to be really brave and creative to start something new, to do new exercises. And that's where experience comes in because all of a sudden when you do a new situation, players might not react the way that you did. And you were so focused on making it game-like or making it, uh, you know, good speed and the players enjoying it. And it's not a nonsense session where balls are running out all the time and the players are not touching the ball and stuff like that. Then you ca- that you cannot observe. And then if you cannot observe, the training load conversation goes to trash. There's no training load conversation because all you are worried about is the training session to look good. I've seen people like, uh, we call it in Hungarian, pigs on ice. You know, it, it, like imagine the pig on ice, right? Like not really stable, right? Like uh, wobbling left and right and falling. And so like I've seen coaches like pigs on ice trying to make sure that the exercise is working well before they could consider anything. They didn't even realize what the kids are doing because the observation cannot even come to fruition because they are worrying about the exercise itself. So all in all, I do think that the training world conversation is connected to the training, training session design. And the training session design has to be taken care of first because then you can observe. And when you can observe, then you can kind of have a feeling uh, of the training load. And then you can, if you're lucky, you can go into your, your coach's room and get the GPS data and compare your notes, your feelings, what you observed with the numbers that, that, that was given to you. I have one example I want to share. Actually, I have two, but uh, one uh, in a a little short while ago was a director for Richmond United, uh, national level programming with ECNL and DA. And we had a coach um, and we talk about training loads. So like sometimes when I hear that, I hear about repetitions. Like that's for me, how many repetitions are we planning, right? Um, And he did a finishing exercise and I was guiding him on in that session. I was observing his session and um, it was a finishing exercise with some passing and then ending up with a cross and runners coming in, right? So it was a little bit of a sprint component. There was a little bit of a um, winger dribbling down the line. And he did it for 20 minutes. And I counted the repetitions at the players and his lines were so long and the passing pattern to get to the actual finish was so long that a player on average ended up in 20 minutes with three or four finishes. <laughs> okay, so, so, but... He was, he was not aware of that because, you know, I counted it. He didn't count that. He was worried about that the cross was played in a certain way, that the runner would come in a certain angle. He did not pay attention to which player actually runs through that. And when we discussed it afterwards, I mean, he was excellent about acknowledging that. And like, oh, my, that was not what I planned. Like three runs in 20 minutes, that's not what he wanted. He wanted way more repetition. Um, so, but to Ivan's point, like observing an exercise, not for the exercise, but observing it also from okay, this exercise is running, so what is happening now with the repetitions of the players? Are we getting enough um, physical um, stimulation out of it, for example? I, I, I think that was an example worth sharing. Um, and the other thing, what Ivan um, said very early um, about, I forgot what he was actually talking about, but this <laughs> example came to our mind with a coach. Observing, looked, you need to get better with observing. Me. Yes, thank you very much. Observing. That is actually what the, your comment was. Um, it was about that's where everything starts. And I had a coach 
who also looked for me for guidance, and we drove a long, we had a road trip, we drove for 12 hours, so we talked a lot of things uh, in this, this uh, car ride. And one of the things he says, like, why don't you just tell me what to do as a coach? Right? Why don't you tell me just the exercise I need to do or this is what you want to do and it's, that's not how it goes because I'm not at your sessions. Right? You need to observe and you come and decide um, how the player is responding and you have to change it. There's no such cookie cutter template that I can do with you that I do with another age group. It doesn't work that way. Um, but that was really difficult for him because he wanted the control, he wanted the solution, he wanted to execute the best possible way that somebody with experience gives to them. And that doesn't work. So when we talk about training loads, like we have to observe the players in the moment and then based on that make decisions about how we, how we structure that practice week. and. Uh, the session. I mean, that's a hundred percent. This concept of where art meets science, and I was at the emergence conference last week, and that was the name of their conference. It was like art meeting science, and like the links between the two. And if we're talking about numerics and GPS tracking data and the sprint repetitions and all this stuff, that is just like data in a way. But the concept you're talking about, Sasha, with the coach and or being in this environment where they're not seeing the bigger picture of everyone, of, of how you design this session, like, I don't, not, not empathetically, like, what's the word? But it's the, it's the word that it brings together something that is, um, you, that you have to adapt and you have to be flexible with. And it's never going to look the way that you planned it. And it's about observing that this, like Ivan talks about. And this skill of observing is not something that we're taught in coaching licenses. We're taught what you're talking about, Sasha. We're taught that you have a plan beforehand and that this plan is going to go like this. And if this happens, it's going to go, you're going to do this. You know, and they even teach us to coach games like that. If we go down one nil, you put in this player, you change to this formation. And it's all not happening in the moment. You know, and you have to be able to be adaptable, just like the players need to be adaptable as a coach and based off of what you observe happening. And that is a skill in itself. And it's, I always hear this phrase, I think from Carl Woods, I heard it. Like if you, if you study birds, right? If you study birds really well and you know everything about birds in your area, like I'm in Virginia and I know every single Virginia bird, right? And I know it from my book and I know they're, their habitat, habitat styles, and I know what they eat, and I know their flight patterns, right? When I'm going around looking for that bird, I'm looking at for my knowledge of the bird rather than the bird itself. I'm not looking at like the, the bird in reality, what's happening. If, and if you're not careful, you can observe your own knowledge rather than what's really happening. Okay, I, I have That's something really that- That's a good concept. That's inspiring, I, I think, it's, or interesting. Um, let me let me just share this because that's that. Are you saying something? Can't hear me. Damn it! Yeah, it's Ivan is off, right? He probably wants to argue that it wasn't him, the coach that I was talking about. <laughs> How about now? Well, I think it wasn't him. Thing. Oh, we can hear uh, you. Okay, what what the hell is happening with this now. thing? Um, so you, you will cut this, right, Julian? <laughs> Are you gonna cut this? Maybe. 
You know, I'm going to have the AI do it. Okay. All right. Okay, good. Um, So sorry for that. But I had some thoughts on that. Uh, So first of all, because you were talking about how like it is the observation is through your own lenses. So whatever you observe is already on your own lenses. And it's not necessarily the reality all the time. I think that I think that and and this is now going to be a little bit controversial. Okay, Uh, because I think also talking about the observation, the topic of observation, uh, we need to be a little bit more honest when it comes to the coach's ability to observe. Uh, you might mistake me for yelling, instructing, motivating, coaching, but I'm observing because my observation skills have been advanced by the places that I've been and the methodology that I had to use and the people that I was surrounded with that like made me, forced me to observe and, and stay quiet for long training sessions. I, I had a technical director from, from who worked in La Masia who told me to I need to run a whole training session without talking. And we did a whole training session without talking. Um, then other, another training session, we did a whole training session without cones. Um, another training session, we did a whole training session without bibs on. And if you look at those training sessions, those training sessions were run just as competitively as any other ones. For example, the, the one without using cones was the easiest because using the, the field lines is just so easy. Like, you know, I can do a, you know, you give me 18 players, I can do a whole chain session just inside of the 18. Um, so it's, it's a very easy one if you think about it. But, you know, it made, made us, basically the point of the exercise was is to learn how to observe better. When you cannot communicate with them, all you do is the ball and the cones and then you just throw the ball in and say here are the pennies like you don't say anything you just point at the pennies um and you know they, they come up with their own rules they communicate and you just like you just you know shrug your shoulder and say like okay it's your game and you have to observe now the behaviors and things like that comes out of it really beautifully but why am i saying that is because it might sound arrogant but my observation skills i think when it comes to youth soccer have been advanced in the last couple of years because of these places that i've been um and so I think that the experiences that you had previously also help you with the observation skills that you can that you have. You need to have experiences. You need to see multiple age groups. You see, you need to see multiple teams. You need to see multiple geographic uh, locations and and socioeconomic backgrounds in order to understand the, the 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 training session and the players' behavior that you are observing. Then, of course, and this is where it gets interesting. Um, once you are once you are advanced with your observation skills, what do you do with it and how you interpret what you've seen because of the filter what Julian said? I think that's, that's, a, that's, a, very, that's a deep, 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 maybe even too deep uh, conversation that, uh, that coaches should have. Sasha, you said you got to go. Like, you, can, you can hop out whenever, man. We yeah, great you. talking to you again, guys. Um, thanks. I'll Bye, Sasha. See you, see you, Sasha. Yeah, it's almost like it's it's like learning how to watch without any sort of judgment. No, it's just kind of observing for what it is, what's actually occurring uh, without, you know, this is my session, like this is my activity that it's like, no, it's like what is actually happening in reality? Um, what's impacting what? Um, what are the, the big kind of... Uh, factors driving the game in a certain way over another it's 
it's uh yeah the ups the whole idea of observation is is difficult um that's interesting that you had to run the session without so the talking was just not talking at, at all. all and you were just like point at all mm -hmm. wow imagine at the, my, my favorite one was uh, the no bibs i mean imagine that so you could communicate there, like yeah. not all together. So it's it's one chain session, like one chain session, no bibs, but you can communicate. One chain session, bibs, but you cannot communicate. One chain session, cone, yeah, yeah, right. no cones, bibs, no cones. and communicate. You know, right? Like so, like all, I mean, at the same time, no cones, no That's bibs, so cool. no communication. That I think is a little, little, little tough. That might not be a thing. Oh man, this is so good though, because this is ex like a constraints-led approach for coaches and coaches to learn to adapt. Yeah, no, that's a hundred percent. If anyone's listening to that, I mean, I'm gonna try this soon. You know, I think this is a great. Yeah, practice. I like that also. So I tell you a quick example cool. of it. I can tell you a quick example. So Diego Luna was part of the training session. Diego Luna, if you guys don't know, Diego Luna, he's a U20 American national team player playing for yeah. Real Salt Lake. Um, He's an MLS player at age 20. Um, he was my player for two years, a fantastic player. Um, and we, he was part of this training session and there was no cones. And so the, the, it's it was really funny because we played a 6-3-6 plus two on an entire half because there was no cones. So I told, I told him like, okay, so you guys cannot pass that halfway line and you guys are playing here. And, and Diego, because I didn't say in the rules where you can go and where you cannot. I just said you cannot pass this line, the halfway line. He now did what the hockey players do, where he dribbled the ball behind the goal and stood behind the goal. And if the players wanted to get it up from him, he went to the left side. If the players come from the left side, he went to the right side. He played, he, he played with them like a hockey player, like a defender hockey player when they start, the, mm -hmm. when they start their role. And so I, I remember f having this... Like aha moment, like this is what a constraint led approach is, and again, he, you know, going back to the training load conversation, how are you gonna measure the training load in a training session like that? It was, you know, you, yeah, exactly. you it, emergent so, solutions. Yeah, that. exactly. Never planned for. Exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. It's a great point. But again, in a professional situation where you want to make sure that at the end of the day on a Saturday you win the game. I always have to go back to this. When you want to make sure that you're winning the game on Saturday yeah. because your left back is not over overworked, you need to do everything in your power to make sure that that left back feels fresh and that left back is not over overworked and that left back doesn't get a calf uh, injury in the 35th minute of the game. And as a result, that's when yeah. training load and the management of training load and the conversation on training load became a very important part of the discussion. Um, how about like you know going from turf to grass? You train on turf during the week and playing on grass on the end of the week. The environment changed. We know that from an ecological framework that the moment when the environment one aspect changes, everything changes. It becomes chaos, and now you cannot measure the training load once again. So do you? Do you? Uh, it's a funny story. I, I tell, tell, tell you guys about. Sorry, I'm rambling, but a lot of thoughts are coming. Um, I tell you guys a quick story, and I want to hear your thoughts on this. So the Hungarian national team in 1986. Um, uh, just beat Brazil 3-0 at home on a friendly, uh, preparing for the World Cup of 86. Then goes to the 86 World Cup, it's in Mexico. Um, and it was played on, uh, on, on the top of a t 
top of a mountain, like it was on a hill. It was uh, what do you call it in English? Uh, the you know the the difference altitude. altitude. Yeah, they were, the game was in altitude, and and um, as a result, the Hungarian national team coach thought about it, and that's why I brought it up because of turf and grass. What's the decision? Are you trying to get used to the different altitude, or are you resting the players, or like you turning down the training load in order to make them fresh because it's going to be a harder load on them in the game day? So the decision was made that the Hungarian national team coach going to train the players in Austria in the mountains um, in order to get ready for the altitude. Now, if you know, Mexico and Austria are very different geographical locations. Austria, you can you can ski in Mexico. I don't know if you can ski, but I have a I have some doubts that in the summer you can you have uh, snow on the mountains. So it's very different, uh, very different environmental factors. To the altitude was the same, but everything else was not. And they go to they go they went to Mexico uh, while the they played against Russia, the Soviet Union, RSSR, the USSR, the first game, lost six nothing. It was one of the biggest tragedy of Hungary, but they were third or second in the European rankings. Again, beat Brazil as a, in a friendly uh, two weeks before, uh, three nothing at home, and they lost six nothing in the World Cup opener. And players look like they can't run. They look like physically not ready to play or mentally in any way possible. And so, training load conversation. What, like, how how are you going to train the national team to get ready for the Mexican environment uh, alt- with altitude? Are you going to take them to Austria? Or are you going to not worry about all those environmental factors and you're trying to convince them to play their own game, steal whatever the environment factors are? This is a training load conversation. That's a really good question. And I don't know the answer, obviously. Um, they don't know it either. Where Still. my where my head goes, however, where my head goes is um, how can we create as many different, not like excessively, but can we create different altitudes for them to play in and have to adapt between them? You know, so not getting used to just Austrian right. altitude, exactly. Not getting used to just Hungarian. It, it, mm. The ability to adapt to a new one. And I view skill this way too. And I know these things are kind of interrelated, but it's about adapting to the circumstance. And if this is like a physical adaptation with like your lungs and your your nervous system, and you know, this these kinds of physiological things, like if you can do that to an extent um, between different places, I think you might have a better ability to do that at, at a new one. And that's like the test for transfer and skill. Like when they do skill testing trainings in these like um, these research papers and stuff, they they train them in different approaches, right? But then they they bring about a new environment for them to adapt to, and then that's where they measure transfer. They don't measure transfer in the same environment that they they trained in, because that would that be that wouldn't really help you. It'd be kind of biased, you know what I mean? And so I think this ability to adapt to new things is is key here. Yeah, it's super. It's super interesting. I, I would have thought. Yeah, I mean, I think like specificity there kind of maybe comes into the play. I mean, the point that you make is a good one. I like Austria. The mountains probably different than Mexico in the mountains. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I was watching actually the other day. The it's a good, 
good documentary, the one of uh, Bilardo, who was the coach of Argentina in 86. Um, and he actually, Argentina's the first ones to get the Mexico. Uh, part of it for that reason, because they knew they had needed to adapt to the altitude. I think they were there like a month before everyone else. Um, and they would just train at like the Club, Club America like facilities. Um, but yeah. Okay, so then that's really, that's a great, that's great. Now that you're talking about that, you know, you, you, you're intriguing the Hungarian man because uh, in Hungary it's still a topic. And that's 86 people. That's 86. We are turning into almost uh -huh. like a 40 year thing. Okay, uh, and there's still a uh -huh. conversation. The, a new book just came out, trying to figure out what's the truth of it. Literally, just just now. What happened? What happened? Because one of the things they said oh, wow. was that they they ate a lot of pasta because they wanted to get carbohydrates in in them, and 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 because of the pasta they ate something bad. Now there's a political dimension that they say that uh, maybe because we were playing against the Soviet Union and back then we were in the Soviet bloc or in the communist bloc. Uh, Hungary was so like we needed to give the game to Soviet Union to win uh, yeah, yeah so the, that was a political uh, reason oh, but but so <laughs> like but when we with the knowledge that we know now and if you look at the game like it was like I think 3 nothing after like 15 minutes or something like that like some crazy right and again we were one of the best teams in Europe we really were uh, and and we played like a high tempo technical game like it looked good you know but again I can't can't emphasize this enough, against Brazil, 3-0 in the preparation for the World Cup. So it's not like a nothing team. How do you lose 6-0 after that? And, right. and I think with the knowledge right. and, again, the topic of, uh, of, of training load, I think that the, the, the ideology of how to prepare a team was very mis, mishandled. I think it was mishandled with the Austria training camp because, as Julian said, you need to... But to, in order to develop adjustment, you need to have differentiating. Sometimes this, sometimes that, sometimes this, sometimes that, every time something different. So you're always adjusting. So, you know, the altitude is just one of the factors that you adjust. It's not the only one that you, that you need to adjust. You need to adjust that you are away from home. You need to adjust that it's hotter. You need to adjust that it's the Russian team. You need to adjust that, you know, um, you are in a World Cup, so you're representing your country. So a lot of pressure on you. So there's a lot of factors to consider not just that hey it's gonna be altitude and putting it in forefront that that's the only thing that we need to and that's what we need to concentrate maybe they got they maybe they did run you know more or the same amount right. you know maybe maybe they did adjust to the altitude but then they forgot the other factors um so i think so i think right. when it comes to like chaining load and how to design i think there's no the, the main the main uh, conversation and and again it's funny because we are talking now an hour really um you know the main recipe for this is that it has to be it has to be different it has to be based on observation it has to be based on your your own experience and then somehow you need to gather the experiences of the participants in order to get good feedback which you can use to adjust better you as a coach to the environment that you are in yes the other thing that maybe comes to mind, and I don't know, I mean, maybe this, I know Hungary was very, very good, like in the 80s, so maybe they were, uh, and then this is, I, don't, I would be interested to get your take, but I, I know back then also, like while I was watching the show, they still had a lot of like conventional kind of training stuff that they would do, like they would have the oh, yeah. tree, I saw they had trees and the players like run, running in between the trees and like there was still a thought that like there needed to be some sort of physical preparation 
before you could like play the game, that, you know? Is that true? And that's I'm very place. much like the believer that like running without any sort of decision or stimulus is very wow. different to like the running that occurs in the game, okay. you know? And there's a saying that's like, um, they don't get tired because if, if someone was tired playing football, they would literally die. They wouldn't be able to move, right? Like that would be, that's, they're tired. Uh, what fatigues is like the ability, I think, to consciously keep making good decisions. So um, I'm curious if like maybe a lot of the teams that tried to prepare, like they it, they they did too much maybe like they tried they to definitely prepare did for too the much. Mexico World Cup. They're like oh, they definitely did too much. Yeah, like to go run in the but altitude. I would say, let's do all these. I things. would say something else. Uh, and now that we're going into history, we, we should do a whole podcast on on some of these things. But uh, who was the coach for Russia? The name of the coach was Valery Lobanovsky, who is one of the first one or one of the disciples of Johan Cruyff interpreted total football differently. He said, and this is like, uh -huh. this is like amazing. Um, he said it a long, 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 long time ago that the, where modern football is going is going to be about how do you manage small spaces when you have the ball and how do you manage large spaces when you don't have the ball. Mm -hmm. that's, he said that that's where football is going in the mm -hmm. 80s. What he was doing is that he he wow. yeah it's unbelievable unbelievable some some of the things you need to read up on Lobanovsky, uh, Lobanovsky was unbelievable. Of course he's coming from he's a Ukrainian man, yeah. um, but of course Soviet Union part of Ukraine. Let's not go into it right now. It's a hot topic obviously around the world. But Ukraine was part of the Soviet yeah. Union and and he was a Ukrainian person, so he was a legend for Dynamo Kiev. Uh, as well, and so he he was the one they run of if I remember correctly like a, a you know the straight line four four two but he was the Red Bull before Red Bull. There was no star players. They were together. They keep the distances between themselves. They they ran towards the ball all the time and they managed the space according to that. And they were really fit physically and they attacked everybody, attacked everybody, defended. So that was their mindset. But he looked at it very complex. Right. So, you know, of course, on that day, on that particular day, it really didn't matter what the football philosophy of Lobanovsky is and what was our head coaches who was selected the best coach in Europe a year before. Uh, coach of the year in Europe was our national team coach in 85. Um, but it was no difference between the philosophies of the, of the coaches or that was not the main, dis main problem. The main problem was is that the way that they prepared the team the years before, the Lobanovsky's Russia was ready to compete and ready to play in a team sports environment meanwhile hungary's were not because their preparation was focusing on very different aspects um, i think that's an important part of that concentration or of that discussion of it's interesting in argentina of course um you know very different their their constant was a guy named diego maradona and everybody else you know worked extremely hard to take care of the god that is that is in the middle of the circle right. so that that was a very different like environmental factor or a very different context in which argentina didn't care what the altitude is they had some kind of emotional overload that carried them through whatever the situation is presented at that moment but hungary didn't have that 
Russia went the complete opposite where they didn't have any star player. Everybody was like a soldier. Now you can go into what we got went into last time about the political context of socialism where everybody's equal and everybody has a role and everybody's working together for the common good um, that we call communism. You know, like so the Lobanovsky's um, methodology or Lobanovsky's ideology in some way or form is certainly, um, while it is very complex and very... Um, supportive of humanity and the human values of of expressing freedom, but it's also very much, uh, you know, you I can put into the sociocultural context of communism too. Um, meanwhile, the Hungarians that um, you know neither neither communist. We were in the communist bloc, but we really didn't believe in that in that in that political system. And also, we are not like Diego Maradona, where we have like a god in the middle, like a South American way, where there's a god in the middle, like Riquelme, <laughs> Pelé, Ronaldo, Ronaldinho, and everybody else revolving around them we didn't have either so we were lost in the sauce as they say so yeah i can talk about this forever be very careful <laughs> that's good stuff man i'm um i'm wondering how much longer we should go here anybody got anything last they want to get off their chest i think we've uh we've gone a, w a little bit away from load but we've we've gripped on just enough you know it's still with us but uh We've gone off into some new directions here. I think the message that I would just emphasize that I think we, we got to is like um, observe, like add context to the numbers, add context to what you're doing. And I think as long as you do that, I think you can stay close to the reality of what's going on in the training sessions with your team. The moment that you try to just simplify things into a number or something is I think where you can start to run into some problems. Yeah, and the last thing I want to say is after hearing Ivan talk about the like kind of style of play um, with, with with the Russian team, right? And the high pressing and the making the field smaller and the managing small spaces when you have the ball, right? And the way that looks and the way the players physically behave and that is something to prepare for as well. So when you're designing your your training week, it's also in reference to how you see the game as the coach, I think. And also in response to the social cultural constraints of the community that you're in, in the form of life that you're in. And we didn't really talk into specifics of how we would design the week in terms of methodological concepts and um, team like shared uh, principles and affordances responsive to that you know we didn't talk about that so much but i think that's an important thing to consider when you're designing the the training week and you're setting up the week in a way that is improving their adaptation under certain intentions that the team is sharing and um if they're a little bit older which i'd call the performance training phase then you are talking about exploiting affordances that are already that you already have planned to exploit as a team together you know what i mean um, rather than mm -hmm. searching the space for new ways that what you might do like in the middle of the week at the beginning of the week um, where you're kind of learning to have dexterity in your skills I think that is related to this um, periodization of skill training stuff from Fabian Oat and guys like that that are they're working on ways to kind of have an ecological way of doing this um, and that's kind of one thing I wanted to mention at some point but I think that's kind of the direction this needs to go less so about numbers but more so about the the, the skills that the players are doing in 
the, in the moment that we're observing. And the skill adaptability is all about obser observation and seeing what like skills they have and seeing what affordances the team is interacting with, like in the moment, you know, like it's all this fancy language for this stuff that you can observe directly, you know, and that, that's what's cool is what is happening in front of you is the standard of measurement for how to design your training week in relation to the principles that you have the team sharing together. I think it's a perfect ending. Uh, I did want it to. I did want to um, read, um, and I, and I want to. Um, I want to offer it up, everybody. If I, th I just saw that there's the fourth edition came out, which is, which means if somebody doesn't know, I learned it the other day. So sorry if it sounds stupid, but when you when they do editions, it's of course updating the content of a book, but also because people are asking for new version like the, the like they want to print it again like they need more versions of it or the more um units of the book well, they, they defend some stuff yeah because too. sorry yeah. say it again they defend some stuff yes. sometimes like the book has had some criticisms yeah. and like yeah we're gonna add some stuff to kind of defend uh, that or add to it uh, add to the, but that's the pretty narrative. cool i think that you know this book that i that i i think i'm responsible for at least 25 units being sold of this book because i always tell people um it's <laughs> it's complex football what's the book man? it's complex football by javier mayo javier mayo is a fitness coach of of was a fitness coach of real madrid and it's the the t subtitle is from cerudo structure training to friday's tactical paralyzation and that is basically the bible of of my thinking of the foundation of the thinking that i during covid i read it twice and so they're talking about here um talking about complex systems uh, and I just wanted to read something um, from the book, if you allow me to. Uh, and maybe that's going to be the end of it, Julian. Okay. Uh, I can't okay. wait. Stepping into the reality of football, we can find complex systems as different, at different levels. Players, teams, and games matches. Each of these entities demonstrate the principles of complexity, which need to be respected when studying the phenomena. From the concepts described in the previous section, it is clear that footballers should be considered as complex systems, and the same happens with teams as they are formed by a group of players. In both cases, the whole is more than the sum of its parts, and hence, a footballer is more than the sum of its capacities, whereas a team is different to the more association of its players. The football player needs to be holistically conceived respecting that there is a continuous interaction between all his capacities and between him and the environment. This implies that, theoretically, players with worse physical conditions or genetics to play football are able to reach, are able to reach top-class standard as they self-organize their capacities in a different way, empowering other structures to perform in the sport. This is one essential characteristic of complex systems which are able to develop emergent behaviors to adapt to different contexts. The final solution is never known at the beginning, but will emerge due to the complex interactions between all the parts and the environment. Two situations will never be the same, as the constraints will always be different, which makes the predictions of long-term performances very complicating. complicated. Teams represent micro-societies where network relationships are built between the players and can be studied under group dynamic analysis. The studies 
carried out by Maureen from 1993, helped to clarify this idea, as the relationships between the players create a new collective identity, which is different from the independent activity of the players. By doing so, the system shows properties that the elements do not represent in isolation in, other system, in another system. Again, holistic, interaction, environment, chaotic, nonlinear behavior, etc. are auxiliary concepts which help to describe these complex systems. That's it. Oh, that's wonderful, man. I, I think we could have a whole like other that. podcast about that quote right there. That, that was so good. And man, yeah. I, we, got, we got to end it before we get going again. But um, great, great job, guys. And looking forward to the next one. Bye, guys. Awesome. Always a pleasure, guys. Thank you. See ya.